Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to our Health Systems Science Series, or HS Cubed. I'm here today with Dr. Ned Palmer, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Panacea Financial, who's supporting, generously supporting this uh, series here. And he's also notably a friend of Inside the Boards. And I mean, less notably, but legitly, um, he's a a part-time faculty at the Center for Bioethics at Harvard um, and the Global Health uh, and Global Health at Boston Children's duly certified in internal medicine and pediatrics. He's got an MPH. He does humanitarian stuff um, at Harvard's T.H. Chan School for Public Health. Just an all-around all good guy. And fun fact, he's a ginger. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Beeman. Always a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we're also here with uh, uh, what appears to be the inimitable Richard Liu, who I just met, but he is an MBA and a third-year medical student at Harvard. Um, And actually, uh, Richard, your uh, mini-CV here uh, has me uh, a little bit envious. You uh, uh, went to Princeton and studied chemistry and health policy, and then you were a Rhodes Scholar um, studying global health at Oxford. Uh, what, What school were you in? Maudlin or... I, I was in Trinity College while I was at in Trinity. All right. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I would have loved to have been a Rhodes Scholar. So good on you. Awesome. And then, and then, listen up. He, uh, you, you worked for McKinsey, um, and grinded it out there. Um, so you're a, a founding member of Off Their Plate, an organization that was created because of this pandemic um, that empowers restaurants to feed healthcare workers in local communities in crisis. That's pretty cool, man. How do you find the time? Uh, well, I, I will say during the, during the pandemic, a lot of us were pulled out of the hospital. And so we had a number of Extra months. Time. We time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. All right. So uh, Richard, thanks for joining us. Dr. Palmer, as usual, thanks for joining me. Uh, Let's dive in to our usual jumping off point in the Inside the Boards podcast. And that is a board style question that we're going to go through here. And the first one that we're going to do is 
about health system science since that's the series. Um, today we are talking about healthcare finances and economics. So this question relates to that. And here we have a nurse who's working in a physician's office uh, preparing insurance forms. I'm not sure why she's preparing insurance forms. Feels like that's not what she should be doing, but in which the provider is given a fixed amount per enrollee of the health plan. Uh, so which of the following best identifies this type of reimbursement? Is it A, prospective payment systems, B, capitation, C, bundled payment, or D, rate setting? It's pretty pretty uh, terse question here, but um, how should students think about these subjects? Uh, Richard, you, you have an MBA. Um, why, why don't we ask you? Sure. Well, you know, it, it is a pretty specific question. You know, you, it, it, it's one of the, having just come out of step one myself, this does feel like one of those questions where um, you kind of know the definitions of these or, or you don't. And I, and I think it's becoming increasingly important for, for us as med students to, to understand how the care that we're providing is being paid for. Um, and so I think the key part of this question here is that uh, the provider is being given a fixed amount of money per enrollee. Um, and to contrast that with an option that is notably missing, which is fee for service, you know, fee for service is how med medicine is traditionally paid for. It's kind of how, you know, when you go to a store and you buy something, you pay a certain amount of money for a certain thing that you get. So a doctor traditionally would be given a certain amount of money for every procedure that they did, every medication that they prescribed. Um, and this is a little bit different. They're saying that um, rather than paying for your services, you're being given an amount of money for every patient that you see, every enrollee of the health plan. Um, and so, sorry, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it or well. I mean, that's, that's capitation, right? That's the definition of capitation. So uh, what are all the, the kind of traditional payment models or, or things people should be thinking about? I, I, I like what you said about a, a grocery store and paying. I, uh, I always, um, you know, as an attending who came out of the military where I didn't really worry about any of this, I always say like, if I work at Taco Bell, I know that my money that I'm paid comes from how many tacos we sell. But when, now that I'm like in the civilian world, I, I, I have no idea where my money comes from. Like the, they pay me. And um, so, uh, yeah, like capitations one, all the um, people enrolled or impaneled in that uh, plan assigned to the physician um, get a, a what a, a price is put on their head because cap capit in, in Latin is head. Right, exactly. And, and I think, you know, it, it's interesting for us, you know, even if we take a step back and talk about healthcare economics broadly, you know, how is that different from traditional economics that's driven purely by supply and demand? You have someone buying something and using it and someone else selling it. Healthcare economics, at least in the United States and in, in many other countries, doesn't necessarily work that way because the person that's paying for your for the care itself is usually not the one that's receiving it. There's kind of a three-tiered model here where the entity that's paying for the care, the health insurer is different from the, the patient that's receiving the care and who's different from the provider that's actually providing the care. Um, and we need to ask ourselves, why is our health care system designed this way? Why do we need the middleman? Um, it's like going to a grocery store 
and you pay someone else to pick up a basket of goods for you. Um, and, and Instacart. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and why is that American healthcare system designed this way? And um, in part, it's by design, right? Like, you know, healthcare can often be extremely expensive. And so to protect people from the risk of financial catastrophe from, uh, you know, you get into a car accident like Tiger Woods did yesterday, and, you know, you have to have surgery, and that will cost you tens of thousands of dollars. Well, if you're Tiger Woods, you probably could pay for that completely out of pocket. But for, for most Americans, for most people, that's not possible. And so we have insurance. And so this whole idea of a nurse filling out paperwork for an insurer, you know, the whole reason why that's necessary is because we have insurance set up in the first place to protect patients from financial costs. But that brings up the point that this is why this may, might be a factor in my healthcare costs so much if we're paying like nurses to fill out paperwork for these things. Um, well, <laughs> right. So then, then the question becomes, you know, why are we bothering with all of these different new systems? Why can't we just, you know, have this, you know, uh, risk spreading system where you know everyone pays a little bit to a health insurer and then the health insurer then pays for every single procedure that's being done you know that's essentially how uh healthcare economics in the united states worked for you know decades um and what we've realized is that healthcare is becoming really expensive you know we have new medications we have new procedures we have you know a, a lot of new tricks in in the american healthcare system that cost a lot of money and so as an American with good insurance, you know, insurance that will pay for these expensive things, you know, the United States is the best place in the world to get healthcare. Um, but we struggle on a lot of other basic things, um, you know, at, like preventative care, primary care that focuses on on health rather than treating, um, you know, sickness. Uh, and so capitation, you know, bundle payments, these are new strategies that payers have developed to try to move away from a system where if you go and, and you break your leg and you get a surgery for that, the doctor gets paid. But if for some reason that surgery doesn't work and you need a second operation and because of a complication, that surgeon gets paid again, the hospital gets paid a second time. So in a weird twisted way, the way that the, uh, the economic incentives are aligned, you you would think, you know, the doctor that makes mistakes, not, not that any physician is trying to make mistakes, of course, but, you know, the doctor that's that how you mistakes, make bank. Yeah. In a weird way, you know, it's almost incentivizing yeah. people to, um, to, to, to perform more, to do more. Whereas, um, you know, these alternative models that are coming up are seeing a patient as an entity to see, you know, a, a period of care as an entity and to give a certain amount of money to the healthcare provider, um, you know, for a patient or for, uh, you know, an episode of time. And so capitation is one of those things that came out of, um, you know, an old system of fee for service into this new system of let's pay for value. Um, and so we can give a health system or, or a, a provider a certain amount of money in capitation will give them you know, $100 per person that they care for per month. And that's the pool of money that they have to take care of their patients. Um, and and the, the re you might be asking, you know, why would a physician kind of want to do this? This seems like, uh, you know, a recipe for them to earn less. Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of health insurers now are, are going in and saying, well, you know, we'll give you this, this amount of money. And if you don't use all of it, we'll let you keep the rest. And so it's actually for a way for it's incentivizing, it's aligning these incentives now, you know, yeah, pre prevention. 
Exactly. To prevention. Yeah. If you can figure out a way, you know, to, to keep your patients healthy and not get to the point where they need one of these new expensive procedures or medications, you know, you get to keep the rest. And I think it's been a, that's the reason why they're hiring these nurses to, uh, to, to fill out this paperwork, because at the end of the day, um, you know, it's allowing the, the person who pays for the healthcare, the health insurer, and the person who provides the health, the healthcare, the nurses, the, the medical team to be aligned on reducing costs, but maintaining quality. Gotcha. So you mentioned value. Um, can you define value-based care? Because that to me seems like one of these buzzwords that to those who aren't in the know um, might not exactly make sense. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that, you know, it, it depends on who you ask, really. You know, I, I think... Perfect. Um, <laughs> well, I will give you my kind of basic third year medical school uh, version of this, where, which, you know, paying for value means um, tying the, the price that you pay for healthcare to the outcome or the, the value that you get as a result of providing that care. And this is in contrast to what we used to do and what, you know, in many contexts we still do, which is tying the price of the care to the act or the service that you provide. And, you know, it's a little bit counterintuitive. Again, you know, why would you not just pay for every service that you provide? And, um, you know, there are a lot of reasons why uh, the, the healthcare economics breaks down just by virtue of the way that we pay for healthcare, the, the, how we have these three different players, the patient, the provider, and the insurer, you know, who are, who are not always in direct contact with another, who have information asymmetry, um, you know, paying for value is proposed to be one of these ways for us to get around this issue of, of warped incentives and, and, and paying for care that may not be uh, valuable or may not be needed. All right, perfect. So the other thing you mentioned um, during that, and, and thank you, uh, was, uh, you know, kind of um, to, to broaden out from the question on these payment models, which uh, we could summarize the basic ones as what capitation fee for service and bundled payments. Am I missing any? I, I would say for the most part, those are the big ones. And then, you know, we can always get a lot more nuance in terms of how right. these are and how they're designed, but yeah, um, yes, but that's a, that's that. a good foundation. So um, then, to broaden out, um, we might have to take a trip back in history, and uh, so let's do that really quick with one more question, um, which I, man, I would say like um, the future Doctor Lou, you you should read this one and then. Um, punt that question to uh, Ned Palmer, third-year medical student. <laughs> sure thing. So um, this question begins, a 65-year-old man presents to clinic to establish care. The patient states he is seeking a new primary care provider due to his previous provider retiring and wants to find someone in his health maintenance organization's network. The patient is referring to his managed care organization, which is established through which of the following? Is it Medicare Prescription Drug Improvement and Modernization Act of 2003? Is it an amendment of the Public Health Service Act of 1944? Is it Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996? Or is it the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010? So Ned, take it away. 
So that's a fantastic question, Richard. And I'll tell you why. Um, one reason is that the American healthcare system, I really think is important to look at through a historical lens. So we're going to talk about these different answers here very, very quickly. Um, not because I necessarily think that rote memorization of dates is particularly helpful, um, but understanding a little bit of historical context may help map out how the healthcare system got to be the behemoth that it is structured in a way that's frankly, sometimes a little challenging to understand where uh, or, or how we got here. Um, so the shortest answer to this question is B, and that's all, no other information. Um, so, so the answer here is B, an amendment to the Public Health Service Act of 1944. Um, so the Public Health Service Act was initially passed in 1944, a year before the end of the Second World War. The amendment that established health maintenance organizations was passed in 1973. So all this talk about HMOs and PPOs, this goes back for decades, decades and decades into American, uh, into American jurisprudence and American health policy. Look around your med school classrooms and see if there's anybody there who was alive in 1973. Uh, Dr. Beeman, I think, uh, missed it by about a decade or so. Uh, Ned did as well. And more than a decade, more than a decade. Yeah. Um, and, and Richard as our, as our third year medical student, I, I'm fairly sure you missed it by at least a decade as well, probably a couple. To say, the least. Uh, to say the least. And so one thing that I think is really important here to talk about some of the history is why do we have employer-sponsored health insurance? Um, and, and, and I would push that back. I want to see Richard, Patrick, do either of you guys know why we as Americans have employer-sponsored health insurance? Honestly, no, it's never really made sense to me. I, I can take a stab at it. And I, I, I only think I know the answer because I, I took a class on this in, in, in undergrad. Uh, I believe it originated in, in the Second World War. Um, you know, in, in after the Second World War, when our economy was in crisis, you know, there was a wage freeze, a salary freeze that was um, placed on, in, on employees. And um, as a negotiating tactic, um, employers were using health insurance as a way to attract workers um, because it didn't count as salary. And so, you know, prior to World War II, only a fraction of, of health insurance was provided through employers. And then after World War II, after the wage freezes, that number skyrocketed. Um, and it kind of became entrenched, kind of in a path-dependent kind of way where, you know, insurance became something that people worked for. Um, and this, I, this notion of insurance as being earned um, through employment um, and provided by your employer kind of stuck from, from then on. Ned, I'm not sure if that if that's 100% accurate, but that, those are my impressions. It, that's actually fantastic, Rich. That's not impressions at all. You actually nailed it right on the head. So the reason that we as a country have employer-sponsored health insurance was because uh, these very large employers, specifically like you mentioned, um, car companies during the Second World War, which had turned into defense companies during the Second World War, needed ways to attract uh, needed ways to attract workers without uh, without going up on wages. Um, so the reason that we have this is a 76-year-old policy decision made in the middle of wartime. Um, and that has tracked through history. And so I think it's kind of important to go back to the origin story here of why our health insurance really parted ways with a lot of our countries that are matched demographically and economically. And why ours really, really got rooted in a very different, uh, different place in time. So there were a lot of policies passed during and around the Second World War that we're still utilizing. Um, people drive over bridges and look at infrastructure all the time. 
from the Tennessee Valley Authority, all those New Deal projects. This kind of falls into that very same time period of like American economic growth and development um, tied, tied to your employment in this case. Um, seemed like a really good idea at the time. And I really actually do think it was a good idea at the time. Uh, but as we can see, there's some serious struggles with that. Now. So zooming out a little bit, I want to talk to, you know, Richard, I think very excellently hit on what, who the three main players are within a healthcare system. But I want to talk about some, just a little bit of facts and figures to get everybody comfortable with. And so Richard, I'm going to throw this back at you. First, I want you to tell me what is the percent of GDP spending that the U.S. does on healthcare, and then can you try to make that real for me? Because you're about to throw me a percentage, and I don't know how to interpret that in terms of nation-level spending. Sure. So, uh, looking at this chart that I have in front of me, uh, so 18% of the American GDP is spent on healthcare. So that that's somewhere between one sixth and one fifth uh, of the American economy. Um, and you know that that's pretty staggering. I mean, it, it, what it means is that um, healthcare is a extremely prevalent part of our American economic life. You can't really care about much without also considering uh, healthcare and its implications. Um, and you know, especially with what you just mentioned, Ned, about how so much uh, insurance is tied to employment these days. You know, essentially. Every, anyone who has a job or anyone who's trying to create jobs has to at some point think about how are they going to provide healthcare for their employees? You know, it, it's really per, you know, uh, um, pervasive in all areas of our life that we have to think about how, how healthcare is provided, how healthcare is paid for, regardless of what, what, it, is that, um, what it is that you do. Can I, can I just add something else? Um, Ned, based on you know, what you were saying earlier about um, health, uh, health insurance being tied to employment. Wanted to just mention, you know, a, an article that Atul Gawande wrote a few years ago that was entitled "Is Healthcare a Right?" Um, in there, he he talked a little bit about this history, and you know, a lot of us as healthcare providers see as healthcare as something that's very, very important and essential for for people to function, to have um, you know healthy lives, to to, to um, you know when we care about their well being, and we often think of healthcare as a right. And Atul Gawande asked the question, is healthcare a right really in this country? And, um, you know, he came out with an interesting conclusion, which was that, you know, for some people that may not necessarily be the right question. Not, not that it's not an important question, but because for so much of the country, for so much of our history, we have seen healthcare insurance and therefore access to healthcare as tied to employment and tied to work, health insurance is often seen culturally as something that is earned, not something that is given. And, you know, it's an important context to, re to remind ourselves when we think about, you know, um, how we create an equitable and fair healthcare system that allows everyone to have equal access and fair play and to be able to, you know, access care. And the thing about this cultural shift that, as you mentioned, happened kind of out of circumstance after the Second World War, but has really ingrained us in this idea that, that health insurance is something that is to be earned. Um, in 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 our society. Appreciate it. Thank so, besides that, uh, Atul Gawande article. Um, any other resources you'd say are um, especially uh, good for uh, these kind of topics? Anything you'd recommend is interesting and or high yield, yeah. as it were. Well, um, one one other podcast that I got introduced to by a professor 
um, in undergrad is a podcast called What the Health. Um, and it's a, you know, podcast that goes through a lot of these, a lot of these issues as well, you know, talking about the history and has been really helpful for me in, in understanding the question of why, you know, why is our healthcare system designed the way it is? Why does it um, act the way it does? And then to go from that, to start asking how, how can we make it better? How can we improve from here? So right, I would recommend. Sweet. Much appreciated. Thank you. So we're talking about like GDP in uh, American healthcare to continue our view. You know, we've zoomed out now. Um, let's zoom back in. We talked about value-based healthcare. Who cares what our GDP is? Like, why does it matter? I mean, not our GDP, but <laughs> the percentage of GDP that we spend on healthcare. So it's it's a very tough thing to conceptualize. First of all, like what what is the GDP? Right? It's the monetary value. You know, we can all go to the go, go to the old uh, dictionary, but the monetary value of all goods and services within a country during a specific period. What what I think is important to identify is that the GDP is a is a fixed pot. Um, we talk a lot about national debt and how we spend money and things like that. Yeah. What we're talking about of 18% of the GDP is, is upwards of twice as much as some of our matched countries, which means that if we have a fixed amount of things that we're creating every year that have monetary value, we're using up twice as much of it on healthcare. Now, is our healthcare twice as good as our, let's say, distant neighbors in Australia or in Norway, where we actually are spending more than twice as much of our GDP? Do you think... I, I mean... There's a lot of different ways to measure value in healthcare systems, but I think right off the bat for people who are interested in healthcare, if you had to say better, worse, the same in terms of value and you're looking at countries like that, your bet would probably be... Same. I'd say roughly the same. We'd hope for roughly the same because we don't want to be worse. Like, and that's, I don't want us. Yeah, I'm an American, man. Yeah. I'm not going to. We're American and, and, and we're doctors, we're healthcare providers, we're medical students. Like, we're going into this because we want the system to be good. We want it to at least be competitive. Right. And I wish that were the case. Unfortunately, for what we're spending. Ah, <laughs> I know, I know. I had to, I, I kind of had to be the Buzz Killington here. But the, um, but, but to, for the money we're spending, we're not extracting value back up. And that's where this whole field of health economics has really been born out of, of we're spending money poorly. And if you took a look at your own personal finances and you were spending twice as much as your neighbor to live in a much, much worse house, you're going to start to wonder what is going on and look for solutions. Yeah, that is that is not a, a tenable position. And it's not something that, that has a lot of legs, frankly, in terms of the pot that we have available. So in terms of uh, there, there's all kinds of different health system performance metrics, but we do not compete with our match neighbors particularly well, and we're spending much more money, and that's a problem. It is not. Uh, it is not going to be something that can keep going. All right. So then, I guess the question is: If we're spending nearly twenty percent of our GDP on healthcare, what what are we getting uh, with all that spend? That is a great question. We get a lot of things. We get a fantastic medical education system. Um, we get some leading research institutions. We get some of the best named hospitals in the entire world exist here. And I think it's important that we identify those. What unfortunately we don't get is particularly fair access 
The ability to get healthcare in this country is very patchy. It is very insurance dependent. It is very regional as well. Um, and that, for instance, so I, I live and work in Massachusetts. I also work in several other states around this country. My insurance is state-based. And so as soon as I leave Massachusetts, I struggle to find health insur- or find care that my insurance would cover. That right off the bat is really restricting. For those of you that don't know, Dr. Beeman, he lives in Ohio. Same situation. If he wanted to run up to Michigan, heaven forbid he goes on vacation with his family and stubs his toe, he could very easily be substantially out of pocket because of the way that our insurance coverage is done in this very patchy, regional, uh, very patchy, regional and, and inequitable system. And that's a, that's a big problem. It leads to very, very high out of pocket costs. Um, the U.S. has the highest out of pocket expenses of any, of any modernized healthcare system. Um, which means that we're spending more money, not just in the GDP, but also directly on an individual level. Like I'm a physician. I'm also a purveyor of healthcare. I get healthcare. Um, and when I do, I am spending more than people in other countries with similar demographics, with similar economic structures. Let, let me ask about that then. Um, there, there are components to what an individual um, has to pay when it comes to insurance. Um, what are those components just uh, so we have the framework? It's a great question, Patrick. There's a couple of terms within the insurance space that are really important to know. Um, and that's, that's where we want to start talking about them to get you comfortable. So one is your insurance premium. Are you getting premium insurance? That's a great question. I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere for, for somebody who likes dad jokes and wordplay. Um, but your insurance premium is how much is paid to the health insurance company every year. This is generally a combination of your employer sponsors it, like we talked about historically, and then you pay into it out of your paycheck every single year. So that's your, your healthcare premium is the total amount that you're paying every year. Almost every health insurance plan, certainly most employer-sponsored health insurance plans, um, also have a deductible. And so the deductible for medical insurance is that you have to pay the first amount of money, and then the insurance picks up the back. Now, you could have a copay, which is a fixed dollar amount, or you could have coinsurance, where it's a percentage amount. Um, but, but in either case, what you're doing is you're putting a little money in. The insurance companies would say that it's so that you have skin in the game, so that you are a rational economic actor, because if you were given something for free, you wouldn't value it in the same way. Um, so for instance, it's very common to have a $20 payment for an office visit. Your physicians hopefully going to make a bit more than $20 for that office payment and the insurance pays the rest of it. But you pay that $20 with the thinking that, okay, I'm going to stop and think and see if I really need to go to the doctor today. Is it worth $20 for me? There are some obvious issues with these payment structures that I think are important to talk about. One is $20 doesn't mean the same thing to everybody. Um, $20 is a fixed amount. And $20 to somebody who is making uh, $200 a week, for instance, is very different than somebody who's making $2,000 a week. Um, and so you end up with the same pricing structure ends up differentially affecting those who are lower wage and lower income. It, it creates a much higher barrier to entry. Also, it turns out humans, when it comes to healthcare, are not rational economic actors. And this isn't just with emergency services. People often make the, the kind of the joke statement of, well, I'm not going to shop around in the middle of a heart attack. 
The reality is people don't shop around really much at all when they're looking for their health kit. And money and that barrier that money provides doesn't make people better consumers of health kit. And that's been proven over and over. All right. So let's say um, I, I don't know, I, I'm trying to also think of something funny, but um, <laughs> I can't think of anything. So let's just say I need a an operation myself that costs $10,000. If I'm paying $100 per month for my premium, I might have, what, a $10 copay for the office visits related to getting worked up for whatever that condition is that has the doctor decide, yep, you need surgery. And then for the surgery itself, I might have to pay 20% of that co-insurance um, and 80% of whatever is, is picked up by the insurance company. Does that all kind of uh, in line then with these concepts uh, that we covered here? Absolutely. I, As always in health economics, there's another layer of complication. And so what I think is, is maybe worth it to say is, is what you're describing is, um, let's take that as a whole picture and that you could have different structures with either the same physician for different services or different payment structures for the same physician for different services. You could have different payment structures, whether you see them in the office or the hospital or in a surgery center. And you could have different payment structures even within the same building. You could go and see your physician, for instance, and pay him $20 for the office visit. And then he could send you for lab work and maybe to get some pictures done, uh, some, some images done, radiology. And you could pay $20 for the office visit, 10% for lab work, and 20% for imaging, all without leaving the floor. Um, you could all do that within the same floor of his office building and experience wildly different compensation structures, um, compensations and, and payment structures. And that's where a lot of the complexity comes. Now, if on that note, so if let's say I have a deductible that's $1,000, mm -hmm. and if I had to do 10 office visits and pay a copay of $10, there's a hundred bucks. Um, if my surgery costs uh, $10,000 total, and I have to pay 20%, that's 2,000, but I don't actually have to pay 2,000, right? Uh, $2,100 for this thing because my deductible is $1,000. And so the max I'm gonna pay is 1,000. Is that pretty reliable? Absolutely. Um, it is. It's that the dedu deductible is the maximum amount that you pay up to. Yeah. The Affordable Health Care Act uh, has done away with, with some added, uh, some, some provisions that used to be worked into healthcare plans that were complicating. So the healthcare, there used to be kind of maximums where the healthcare would stop paying after incredibly expensive times in the hospital. So let's say your health insurance paid after $1,000, but it stopped paying after a million dollars. So if you'd had a devastating accident or spent a prolonged period in the hospital, you would then be re-responsible for the fees after a million dollars. That's not really done anymore, but it does try to sneak its way into some healthcare systems, uh, in, into some healthcare payment. All right. that, was a, that was a terrible example. I think it's important to say, Patrick, uh, that your $1,000 deductible would be the Cadillac of health insurance plans um, to carry only a $1,000 deductible. <laughs> the average around the country is $5,000 for an individual or $9,000 for a family. Yeah, I know. In, in real life, uh, 
this this shit is uh, way more expensive, and yeah. <laughs> um, I'm feeling the pain. Oh my! Exactly. It's like my daughter actually recently needed surgery yeah. for a, a knee injury, and mm. I, like I feel like a terrible person because my first thought was like, "How much is this gonna cost?" <laughs> Nine thousand dollars. Like you know, it's crazy. I'm I'm glad you're okay, honey. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How's your knee? Do you need it? Like, let's be honest here, okay? Yeah. Does it really hurt? Like, yeah. Right. It's crazy. It is crazy. But it doesn't, it still doesn't make you a better consumer. It just makes you hate it. Right. <laughs> which is the crazy part. That's the <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So I guess uh, one thing, like, you know, we talk about kind of the components of what patients pay. Um, but another thing that I think a lot of people wonder about are, are the healthcare finance area is. Like, uh, what percentage of that goes to physicians? How are physicians paid? Um, or where where do those monies go to? Is it like 99% goes to the CEO of the insurance company and then the 1% is distributed to the hospital <laughs> and uh, the physician and whatnot? Like, break it down. Absolutely. So it's, I wish the numbers were so direct. I would love if we lived in a world that was so direct. Um the health insurance companies and health insurance premiums have made year over year, uh, on, on average, anywhere from 10 to 30% profit. Pharma companies are similar. And so there is a lot of money going into, let's say, some of these middle companies that ends up getting extracted and does not get turned into value for either the patient or the physician or the hospital system itself. I think it's important to say that right up front at the top. Now, how physicians are paid is actually is a, is a fascinating area of study. So physicians are paid, as you can imagine, in complex ways. You may go to work, work in your clinic, punch your clock, see your patients, do all your work. Yeah. At the end of, let's say, the week or, or, or the end of the month or every two weeks, you'll get some version of a paycheck from that. Um, if you're on salary from a hospital, for instance, you may get a really fairly routine salary from that. That doesn't change that much other than perhaps some bonuses here and there. But the reality is that the flows that go into creating that are a very complex mix. And so the biggest flows that funnel into healthcare systems to pay, the easiest way to break it down are public, private, and personal. And so public funding for healthcare system comes from public insurance system. So federal health insurance like Medicare, exactly. State-based health insurance like, uh, like, like Medicaid. And then you've also got some of these others. So you've got uh, the VA provides its own insurance systems. The Indian, health and Serv- the Indian Health Service provides its own health insurance, all within the public domain. Within the private domain, you have private insurance. What we've talked about a lot, this employer-sponsored health insurance or directly purchased insurance from exchanges like healthcare.gov that flow in. This is another big channel of finance for healthcare systems. And then lastly, you've got out-of-pocket expenses. Um, That $20 copay that Patrick just paid for his visit, the 20% that he paid for the upcoming surgery, those are all direct out-of-pocket expenses. And so into a healthcare system, you have these three big flows coming, okay? So that's what's, you know, we talk a lot about I's and O's in medicine. That's your I, your big picture I. So the O's for a healthcare system go out to pay all of the different providers, staff members, facility fees, inventory fees, 
uh, maintenance and upkeep, expansion, education, all of those different features provide the outputs of all of that. Okay. So one of those outputs is a provider, a physician. So the physician, when they're getting paid, the averages are on a, on a great big, uh, great big study done by the AMA. Uh, the averages are that just over 52 cents on every dollar that a physician makes comes from a salary compensation. So you get a fixed amount of money. The next biggest part of how you get paid is 32 cents of every dollar that you get paid is tied to some level of personal productivity. So Patrick is an obstetrician. If he delivers 10 babies, he doesn't get that 31 cents. If he delivers 10,000 babies, that's fantastic. More productivity is better for the health system. So they want to reward that in some way with some form of incentive or bonus. Um, and so that's directly productivity tied bonuses. Lastly, the next major section is 10 cents on every dollar that a physician makes is from practice financial performance. And so that's, that's not how Patrick's doing. That's how his partners are doing. So Patrick can do really, really well. But he's kind of in a group. And so a lot of the ways that uh, it, it, a lot of the ways that physicians are paid, it includes some of these seeming bonus structures, but it's ways to try to keep each other productive and keep each other honest. Um, this might seem like a weird structure, but what's valuable about this is, is let's say, let's say I'm going to keep using Patrick if it's okay, Patrick, and the, and the OB group. Patrick's a junior attending. He's got the energy to deliver 10,000 babies. But if he delivers 10,000 babies, his partners shouldn't be sitting back and just going on vacation all day, every day. They should still be going to work. And that's where there's some benefit to having kind of a, a group bonus because you all want to be working hard together instead of saying, oh, we got this young gun. He's going to go deliver 10,000 babies. The rest of us are all going to Hawaii for the month. Like this way, you've all got some financial skin in the game as a group to try to keep each other more. And I hope, Patrick, that you don't have to deliver 10,000 babies this year. Uh, that would be an exhausting year for you, um, just to set people's expectations of baby numbers. Yeah, no. But I will say, actually, I, I really do believe that um, companies like the, the one I'm building, um, it makes sense to make a portion of somebody's pay um, tied to the success, whether it's like, you know, the the uh, net profit, if you will, of, of uh, a given month, like a, a person's pay should be tied to fulfillment of the mission or um, everybody contributing, doing well, um, and then having it split equally. But I'm kind of, I don't know, like it's, uh, you know, you're starting from scratch doing, you know, it's my company. I can do whatever I want, but, <laughs> yeah. um, which is not much, but you know, you know, it's, it's, it's just nice if, you know, I, I, Personally, it's like you know, 10% of whatever our net revenue is just goes to our employees and it gets split equally. Mm -hmm. And I, I would exempt if, if theoretically I were being paid for this, um, I'd probably exempt myself if, if I you know, were in a quote exec level. But um, that's sort of a tangent. But, um, but at the same time, yeah, tie some pay to the mission. That makes sense tie some pay to the success of what you're doing. Uh, that makes sense. That's a good idea. I like it. But, and, and all of these two, that it can be a lot more complex. We are painting in very broad strokes. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, but does bring me to this question. What is an RVU? Like I've heard like, oh, this is, you know, I get the emails, uh, RVU based um, practice opportunity, uh, $900,000 potential. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> uh, you would have to deliver 10,000 <laughs> payments uh, to, to um, generate enough revenue to justify such a, a, a thing. But um, uh, I guess, what is an RVU? What, what are those in the, this scheme? Absolutely. So, so the RVU scheme is called a relative value. So Bob, I'll always go back to history. Uh, about 30, 40 years ago, Medicare, when it was trying to determine how to pay providers for different services, realized that it needed to set some standards for work. And that's really what the RVU is, is it sets an amount of work done. So Patrick's an obstetrician. I'm an internist and a pediatrician. Patrick deals with the laboring mother. He passes the baby off to me and I take care of the baby through the newborn period. We are both very actively engaged in the care of that mother and baby. But how much? Is it one-to-one? One baby for one mother? One labor for one, uh, one, labor for one neonate? And so there's, there's a relative value unit that is attributed to the type of work that physicians do. And this has to do with some of the way that the billing is done and the coding is done. Um, and so really, it's, it's hard to ascribe these values to certain things. It's not as direct as one office visit equals one RVU um, because everything is done. Through- <laughs> or a twin pregnancy, you get paid twice get as paid much. paid twice as much. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it does not scale like that, unfortunately. But what it does scale by is complexity. And that's really what the RVU system is trying to do was to give more time and ultimately more compensation to physicians to see more complex, uh, more complex patients. Because otherwise, frankly, physicians might start to cherry pick healthier patients if they're not being paid for the added time that it takes to see sicker patients, to manage sicker patients. Um, there's only so much time in a day. There's always more patients to go around than you have. And, and it might lead to cherry picking, which is not what anybody wanted. And that's where some of the, the RVU normalization came. So to make $900,000 from an RVU would be very challenging uh, if you were all RVU based from, a, um, uh, from an obstetric practice. The RVUs are tied to Certain diagnoses, some of them don't fall outside of it. I think there's about seven or 8,000 specific either procedures or diagnoses or admissions that can all be ascribed a number from the RV schema. Um, and one of the ways that, that this works in terms of like kind of within this idea of repayment is, is as a physician, you'll provide an RVU. You do a certain amount of work and that impacts your bonus structure. That same work done, so a labor, for instance, one labor, will be paid, the hospital will be paid under something called a DRG, which is a diagnosis-related group. Now, the DRG is, is basically, it takes how much work you did, the RVU, and says how much as a hospital work went into this specific diagnosis this specific treatment plan. And that's, that's what the RVU does is it says that, you know, you as a hospital, you should be able to do an otherwise normal birth for $5,000, $10,000. 
And that should cover all the costs, the admission costs. It should pay for Dr. Beeman's costs. It should pay for the nurses at bedside, the medications you require. It should cover everything that goes into one birth. Um, and so where an RVU can be thought of, of how much work did Patrick do, a DRG can be thought of in terms of how much did the hospital do and how much should it have cost to do? All right. So uh, we talked a lot about uh, uh, many things today. So, well, we covered um, uh, the different pay structures, basic pay structures, the uh, basic types of insurance plans. Um, we got into what goes into the cost of healthcare and um, covered, you know, the different components of what goes into paying for a procedure uh, and how it's divvied up um, in the uh, employee-based, uh, employer-based healthcare insurance plans that we all suffer or that we all participate in. Um, so, as far as other finance things like big picture, Dr. Palmer, like what what else should be known? Anything, or would you give people a uh, particular resource to go to? Absolutely. So, getting more information on healthcare policy and economics is is can be challenging because it's a it's a very quickly shifting landscape. Um, the AMA actually has some fantastic information on uh, healthcare policy and healthcare economics. The AMA has been a major proponent of advancing healthcare policy within the United States for the last 70 years, um, looking out for both the providers and the patient's interests. And so they, they well-representing physicians as a lobbying group, are also really important in helping craft the, the, the policy and then, and then providing the educational materials as well. There will be a link to this in the show notes. Um, and I think there's some great information there that helps really delineate not just the ba- basics of healthcare policy and economics, but really drills down into different features if you're interested in exploring some of the, uh, the nuances of cost, of price, uh, and how this all affects your practice as a, as a, your future practice as a physician or your patient's experience in health. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Thanks for having me here. This was awesome. You know, would love to, would love to come back. These are really important topics that I think all med students should be learning. Um, and so, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for that. And, uh, again, I appreciate your time. Uh, Hey, with all your experience, if you want to come back and do a series in-depth on uh, healthcare economics, you have a platform here anytime. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, this is the final episode in our health systems science series. And I want to thank you and Panacea Financial for um, giving some financial support to uh, pay Chris and Madison to (laughs) do the work that's required to uh, make these uh, episodes. And, um, Yeah, everyone, you should uh, go to panaceafinancial.com and sign up for a checking and savings account and uh, get in with the Panacea Financial fan, or like we like to call it, the Panfin fan. It's a working name. It's a a working name. (laughs) Uh, I might be the only one who's done that, but like, I, I think it'll take off. I think it'll take off. So, all right, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Um, I appreciate it, Patrick.